This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Vong. Join us in our search for a world in which many worlds can thrive. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. For more context, go to pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. It's something that really moves me uh, always in feminist art, the, the fact of reclaiming the body as a source of knowledge and experience. And, and also this idea of continuity between what is the female body and, and nature, not to make it an essentialist uh, connection, but mm. to, to reflect on the familiarity between other beings and, and our own body. Yeah. the continuity that there is there. For this edition of our search for manifestations of the Pluriverse, we tune into the layered landscape of central Asturias in Spain. We encounter large-scale extractivist industrial activities and a patchwork of small-scale rural caserias, self-sustainable farms. In every conversation, we sense the remnants of the Franco regime in the civil war that linger on unrepaired. We traveled here wondering if the strong working class identity of the region, with its unions, strikes and hard-fought victories, still lives on today, as the industrial decline that started in the 80s carries on. At the same time, we see that tourism and leisure are becoming an important economic activity and that rewilding is high on the agenda of policymakers making it food for marketeers who advertise Asturias as a natural paradise. Reality is obviously way more complex than a marketing slogan. Will the workers' culture of solidarity and struggle be the social foundation for Asturias' future? And can this future be a plural future that doesn't deny Asturias' pastoral past and ways of helping each other out? Today we are here with Chiara, Chiara Scaramella. Welcome, Chiara. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Sophie. Thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to have you here. And you, you chose, Chiara, this spot here in a bosque, in a forest. It's the forest where we were cutting hazelnut yesterday to weave a fence. Why did you choose this spot for this conversation? I believe it is a just aesthetically beautiful place, but also a place of companionship with different species that are living in this ecosystem together with us. And also like um, a heritage because it used to be like kept and cared for, for from the community. Even though these practices are fading away, uh, I think it's a reminder no, of how we can uh, live together and take care of each other, though although we are different species. So. So also for our listeners, yes. do enjoy the birds and a little bit of sound of, there's not much wind today, but you, can, you might hear some leaves, you might hear the river, the river the that leads to the fountain that we are drinking these days, which is wonderful. So. Chiara, let me introduce you. You link conceptual and artistic investigation in your practice as a researcher. You're not just a researcher because you also work as museum mediator, you're involved in school projects. 
Um, you're also part of a collective called Viridian, uh, which combines art and eco-pedagogy. We'll get to that. Uh, for you, art is, and I quote you, a fertile ground for hybridization of different ways of knowing. And your PhD research at Universidad Politecnica di Valencia dealt with the intersection of collaborative practices and eco-social art and the political implications of that. Um, I noticed that you, for the, you, the words interdependence and complexity come back a lot in your writings. So actually last night when you shared your work uh, with the group, you said we cannot exist without a network of relations, which I think pretty much sums you up. Um, you are from Cirinolia in Puglia, in the, the heel of the boot of Italy, south, a town with a rural identity. So as a kid, you were already foraging, you like to make pickles, so agriculture somehow has always been part of your life. And today you live in Valencia, where, uh, and, the, and I'm quoting you again, peri-urban agriculture can be, or is becoming, or you're working on it, um, to yeah, activate peri-urban agriculture as a space of resistance. And before the summer, and we had a great talk, which really helped us prep this edition. You gave us lots of leads, like Paca, which is also where we stayed this week, so thanks for that. <laughs> Let's maybe go back a little bit in time, and could we start by sketching some pivotal movements in the cultural history of Asturias? So Asturias is a province, it's also a princedom, it's also an autonomous region. Uh, how does all that, all that work? Thanks for the question. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that I'm not an expert in the history of Asturias, but yes, uh, Spain is um, a state whose young constitution defined uh, 17 autonomous regions because during the dictatorship there was like a highly centralized uh, government in Madrid and that somehow um, suffocated and It didn't allow uh, regional identities to flourish. So when there was democratic transition, they decided to give more power to um, local regions. Some regions have more power than others. Um, and also to, there was a movement to like revitalize the languages and the cultures. So Asturias is, is one of these 17 regions. Um, there's a, like a local language, uh, which is Asturiano. It's not uh, one of Spain's uh, official languages because Spain has uh, four ones. Uh, for, for like it's Catalan and then Basque and Gallego and then Castellan, Castilian, how is it called? I think in English. Asturian is not one of those, but still it's very much uh, spoken. And although it changes from one valley to the other because of the complex orography of, of the place, there are lots of mountains, so communities were kind of separated from each other for a long time. Um, Asturias is um, often viewed as this uh, like rural, uh, natural, beautiful landscape, um, but it also has, uh, as we've also seen, during the traveling academy a heavy industrial past like with uh, mining and uh, steel companies uh, being being a part of the economy for uh, several decades uh, also it is associated with these um, um, traditional uh, Spanish and Catholic identity somehow uh, because there there's a like, very symbolic place it's called Covadonga 
which you visited, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that um, is a sacred place. It was a sacred pl- place before Christianity, uh, where, mm, like, uh, yeah, it, the, it was a pagan yeah. uh, site of Pilgrim, cult, right? Yeah. Before it got Christianized. Yeah. Exactly. It's a cave where there is like a spring that's considered sacred. Later, there was this legend that uh, there was an appearance of the Virgin Mary. Um, And also this myth was related to the Reconquista, to the Battle of Covadonga, which was, uh, as as historically, has has been accepted, even though lately it's it's been questioned. But traditionally, there was this idea that Covadonga was the beginning of the Reconquista, which is the reconquering of the Iberian Peninsula by the Christians um, over the Moors, over, over, over the Moors, over the the Arabs, the Arab kingdoms no? that were present in the whole of the peninsula, and uh, somehow um, some conser- the conservative parts of the society have uh, appropriated this um, battle of Covadonga, making it become a form uh, like a sign of an identity that's kind of uh, maybe stiff, as I may describe it, and not open to um, intercultural um, exchange. No? So, um, for example, one of the parties, the extreme right parties um, of Spain, organizes uh, every year a gathering at Covadonga as a symbol for the European and white Christian Spain um, affirming itself. So it's it's a bit of a problematic um, heritage to deal with, but there is this like nuance that has to be taken into account. And it also like has a, a strong uh, connection to the monarchy, which is an institution in Spain that's being questioned many times for for its ties to, to the dictatorship. The monarchy is always under scrutiny somehow. But parts of the society are strongly in favor of it. So there's this duality that's very present throughout recent uh, Spanish history. Yeah. As I said, we're doing a flyover. (laughs) We don't have time to go very deep, but... um, So this was 8th century, right? The the Battle of Covadonga. Um, Let's skip to the 20th century. What was the situation in Asturias during the Franco regime after the civil war? So we're speaking of or 1939 till 1975. How was the situation here in Asturias? In general, um, there were some regions that suffer more uh, the repression of, uh, of, of the Franco regime because, uh, for example, Catalonia or Andalusia or the Basque country because they had a strong... Uh, a strong movement of resistance um, and also in some of them the language was considered a vehicle for other ideas uh, to be spread so also the languages were, were forbidden like you could not speak in public Catalan or Basque or Gallego and in other languages no. Uh, but in, in Asturias maybe the repression was not that harsh but still there were lots of movements uh, for example, uh, there were very significant strikes that uh, took place in this region that uh, also voiced um, the the feeling of, of frustration and um, injustice no, that had 
uh, that was represented by by this regime. Uh, even though, like, uh, Franco's policy, like economic policy, favored in some places Asturias because the, lots of like uh, industrial plants were installed here, and there there was the creation of jobs. But still, maybe the, sometimes the conditions of of work were were really harsh, and so the unions played played a very significant role mm. in this uh, in voicing uh, dissent towards the um, dictatorial system. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're getting eaten alive by mosquitoes here. It's a wonderful interspecies uh, <laughs> interspecies moment. So that's it. dear listeners, if you hear me breathing and stuff, that's why. Um, the, the wounds of, of the civil war and of the, 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 the time un, under the Francoist regime and then that late transition to democracy, right, in, in 1975, you can, still, you can still feel it. It keeps coming up in every conversation we had so far. There's a reference to it. And at the same time, we also noticed that the, the loss and the, the, the mourning and the violence that was part of that period are not so much talked about so it seems like there's no reparation or that everything is very much still present all the wounds same with the discoveries of the americas for example so that we're talking 500 years back um, and you're sitting here with a zapatista viajo per la vida t-shirt how come you're wearing that t-shirt i'm wearing this t-shirt because the zapatistas came uh last year to spain they did this uh they traveled back <laughs> uh, they did like Columbus trip uh, backwards uh, to spread somehow the ideals of the Zapatista revolution and so they um, arrived in northern northern Spain and then all throughout the summer they did this tour in different cities so uh, one of the collectives I'm part of uh, received them in Valencia Um, there was a concert made in one of the squares in Valencia and um, also they held talks they we, we could have a really enriching dialogue with them and sharing their their experience and also the difficulties of it and these t-shirts were created as a way to raise funds to uh, support this trip throughout throughout Spain and I also found Zapatista art very compelling and very interesting so um, yeah that, that is why I'm wearing it it's a um, woman yes and she's masked and she is holding a paper boat yes. uh, which represents the, the ship um, and behind her is a is a rainbow yes. between two clouds and um, can you say something about who the Zapatista were I didn't we didn't mention Well, it's a revolutionary movement of, in the region of Chiapas, in Me Mexico. And it was started uh, in the 90s by indigenous communities, uh, rejecting the international treaties, tra trade treaties with the, with the U.S. So what they did was occupy their own land, saying, okay, our, our state, Mexico, wants to sign these deals that are basically selling all our um, countries' wealth in terms of natural resources, in terms of work and workforce to a big imperialistic force. So we, d we refuse to accept that. And it's also like a cosmovision that's very significant in my opinion because uh, it allows for different, yeah, the, the famous, famous sentence, no, a world in which 
many different worlds can thrive. It's not uh, like a dogmatic way of thinking, but it allows for this diversity to, to blossom. And it, at the same time, it's very specific to the culture. And in terms of art, what I find really interesting is that also the indigenous communities do not recognize uh, art as, as like an autonomous sphere. It is part also of the of the daily life. And artists, Zapatist artists, they do not sign often their work because they consider it as part of a collectivity, a collective creative creativity. Beautiful. I, I would just like to uh, end this uh, history uh, flyover with the word empty Spain that you also told us about in the um, in the prep talk. Um, so what does empty Spain refer to? This dichotomy between the urban environment and the rural, it is very much felt in, in Spain because starting from the 60s, um, there was a huge movement of uh, population uh, going from Uh, the mountains and the rural areas to the coast or to big uh, cities like Madrid, for example. And in the beginning, this, uh, you know, sociologist uh, studying this uh, urbanization movement uh, talked about em an empty Spain, a part of Spain that all of a sudden became empty. But then others, other academics, decided to uh, create a different nuance and say, Okay, it's not empty, it's emptied in the sense that it was not something that happened uh, by chance, but it was a consequence of very specific policies that uh, privileged the urban centers and the coast uh, as um, places for public money investment and for implantation of uh, economic activities, industry, etc. So that naturally attracted uh, the population. Especially, for example, in, in the area I'm living, south, southeast Spain, uh, the boom of tourism uh, created all this work in construction industry. And the coast was, uh, in many zones, pretty much massacred by this, the invasion of condos and uh, buildings for, for tourism, which meant work for some of these people coming from rural areas, but still they had a huge impact on, on the ecology of the coast and also in, in the social fabric of these uh, villages and cities that all of a sudden became very famous uh, touristic places. So this is a problem in Spain because there, there's, a, there's a region between uh, Aragon and Catalonia that is called like uh, the the Spanish Lapland, because the population density is lower than in Lapland, you know, in northern countries, which means that really uh, there's a very little population and most of the times it's uh, getting older. There's no renewal, generational renewal. So this means also that the ecosystem is not being taken care of and uh, these spaces are being colonized by activities such as renewable energy uh, wind wind farms or solar farms there's a beautiful movie uh, that was that just came out this year it's called Alcaraz I really recommend it and it really talks about uh, the loss of a culture that used to be uh, in symbiosis with with the environment and the fact that this these spaces that were emptied are now being colonized by um, something like for example, Clean, clean energy production, but that sometimes we do not, of course it's needed, 
but we do not think about the impact that it has on on the land that is no longer used for farming, but it's become, you know, a farm for solar panels or... Like or a kind of outside factory, exactly. in a way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I really recommend that movie because it really describes also the emotional uh, dimension of this pretty violent and fast transformation of the landscape yeah. in these regions. Yeah. Great. I picked a couple of terms from your 700 plus pages thesis. Voila, dear listeners, I only read the English conclusion <laughs> because the thesis is in Spanish. Um, but I think there is, uh, there are two, there's a concept, you speak of the tension um, between artistic practices that are engaged with eco-social issues in, in rural areas. Uh, the tension between uh, that practice and the neoliberal order that they are subject to, because there is no outside to capitalism. We were speaking about it this morning when we were harvesting the the, um, the leaves of the plant for Virginia's um, workshop. And um, you bring in two words, cultural production versus cultural fruition, fruition, so from fruit, difficult to say the word in English, um, and the difference in rhythm, right, between those two uh, processes. So you, you say that what we need is another approach to time, maybe something like expanded time, where we can shortcut these cycles of consumption and, and, and production. And this conclusion is based on, on all the work you did, the interviews you, you did, the case studies, the field notes, because uh, you put a lot of work into that thesis. Um, and it, you did it a couple of years back. How do you look at that today um, in the context, for example, of L'Alter, which is the current uh, project that you were working on in Valencia? Yeah, the, the work I did for my PhD research uh, was... A very important learning experience for me. Uh, also, I I found it uh, so enriching to just go and visit all these projects in their diversity. They really taught me a lot, all of them. Um, it was also like a way to um, break out of what is um, normally uh, university research. It can be kind of a lonely practice. And uh, for my personality and also for my interest in, in like collective art practices, it was so uh, important for me to, to have this more uh, shared space uh, for learning with other practitioners, other artists who are trying to explore uh, new forms of uh, creativity uh, that are not necessarily uh, centered on what's new, you know, creating something new, this obsession that we have since the vanguards, you know, in general, in in Western art to um, invent. Donna Haraway says there are stories of continuity, you know, they're trying to cultivate processes that are not necessarily related to this uh, consumeristic machine that sometimes uh, contemporary art can be, because as artists we are immersed, as you said, as, as many other professionals in, in the neoliberal order and, and rhythms that force us, you know, in the creative industries, quote and unquote, uh, to be subjected to this endless uh, creative struggle to, to produce, produce, produce. And they're trying also to um, use this, this expanded time 
uh, as a form of resistance in the sense that it's not a time that's neoliberal time is not a time that's compatible with life because it's linear, because it doesn't take into account uh, the fragility of the human body, for example, of our relationships, the fact that uh, things appear and disappear, that things are born but then they also die, that we are all full of other needs and they are not often taken care of within this like highly competitive system. So that, w- that for me was something like, one of the most important teachings of these of these dialogues, because some of the most compelling and rooted projects uh, really have, have lasted for many years. Uh, for example, Casa de la Agricultura in my region in Puglia, it's been in place for 11 years. That is something that really gives a depth to the project that mm, nothing else can give. You know, this trial and error. Uh, the contact with uh, the different problematics of, of the context, uh, the relationships that were built uh, over that period of time. So what I'm trying to do in my own practice in, in Valencia, uh, at L'Alter, which is um, a space that we are creating for both uh, food production but also cultural production, is also to cultivate these long, uh, long-term um relationships of collaboration between agri- like farmers but also citizens who buy the produce it's uh, produced agroecologically with agroecological uh, criteria uh, but also with uh, cultural practitioners and there's also permaculture uh, an expert in permaculture who's helping us uh, restoring the soil uh, in, in this uh, peri-urban land that we acquired. Uh, I didn't say it before, but Valencia is a very special city because it's quite a big city. Uh, together with like the villages around it, it's uh, more than one million inhabitants. So it's, it's a big size for a city. But uh, it's very peculiar because it's surrounded by um, agricultural land um, that's protected. And that also has a very special irrigation system that was studied also by Eleanor Ostrom uh, as a commons uh, example no, of how water as a commons is collectively managed in order to uh, irrigate the different fields. No? So it, there's a lot of knowledge in this in this uh, agricultural land that we also want to rescue through through this project. And this agroecological uh, way of working with the land, that's something that uh, was learned from the Arabs, right? You you told us last night. Well, the, the irrigation system is is uh, uh, was created by the Arabic. Uh, well, it's actually the Berber uh, communities from Morocco that uh, moved to uh, to southern Spain when there was this uh, Arab conquest. And it's a system that's more than 800 years old and it also only works through gravity. It's been considered like a very uh, peculiar example of water management also by the FAO, this uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, as a heritage that needs to be to be preserved. So our idea is to um, do our best uh, to open up a space for um, collective learning and collective care, both of the land and of, of the people. There comes the wind. There comes the wind. Let's see how... I'm going to come closer to you. Hold on. Yes. We're going to make a windshield of the tourists. 
I wanted to ask you something because you said uh, that this, uh, these rural lands around Valencia, they are protected. Um, how, how come so? Are they protected because of that uh, water management system in, that is uh, a common water management, a communal water management system? Is that what granted them the, the protection? Because if so, that's really good news because these, this rural area where we are now this week It's not protected, and that's why it's also getting all frag fragmented and eaten up by industry on one hand, and cut through by highways and uh, sold out and emptied. Um, so how how come the lands around Valencia are protected? They are protected under like cultural cultural heritage law um, because there, there's also like besides the irrigation system, which is a historical, uh, we could describe it as a monument, even though it's something that's being used, it's not something that's supposed to be contemplated, but it's considered a cultural heritage. There are also like architectural constructions, houses, and they were typical of this Orta uh, ecosystem. Uh, the problem with that is that uh, as many laws <laughs> that are uh, adopted by, by a state, they're not always implemented. So uh, if all of a sudden um, the city wants to build um, a new highway or, or the regional government, then they just change the use of the agricultural land and they make it, uh, uh, possible. They make it possible to be, for it to be subjected to a development and transformation that they, they, go, they go on with it. So it's something more of a symbolic protection because in reality, It's not really protected. And that's why uh, the, the notion that you were telling before, no? the idea that agriculture can be a space for resistance, is not something that um, belongs only to the project we are describing. It's part of a, a series of struggles and movements that the people of Valencia have uh, been um, working on in order to protect this, uh, this special agroecosystem. So our Contribution with Lalter is just a little uh, step in this like collective uh, movement to to protect this land, that not only for its cultural heritage but also for its um, highly ecological value is deserving uh, to to be preserved and to be preserved alive as a living ecosystem, not just uh, a field to be looked at, you know, but a pro like a productive space, mm. both in terms of nutrition, like what food we eat and what type of food we eat in terms of food sovereignty, but also what ideas, what relationships uh, um, feed our, our soul in terms of culture, you know, because we are cultural beings mm. in that sense. We are, we are cultural beings, but we can, could also be tree beings. <laughs> uh, there is a beautiful image on the fridge of the Paca house where we stay, becoming a tree of, uh, of Fina Miralis. That is on the fridge of the of the house. Uh, can you describe this image for us? Okay, the artist. Uh, she's a woman. Uh, she's immersed in in what we see as soil, as dirt, up until her thighs, and she's she's looking down. And in the background, we see a mountainous landscape with trees, and also maybe uh, grasses. Um, I I really. I think Fina Miralles' work was groundbreaking. Uh, she was, she started her artistic practice in the 70s in Spain, and we have to remember that 
It was still a dictatorial uh, time, like the dictatorship ended in 1975. So uh, she she's very um, recognized now as a pioneer in ecofeminist art, and because um, she started by uh, doing these types of action, like uh, some of them were in, inside in her house uh, where she was preparing food. Some of them are called like making coffee or drinking tea, like very quotidian uh, actions. And uh, others are made outdoors in direct relationship to the natural elements. For example, the sea, the, the beach, the mountain, the, the leaves, uh, the wood and other natural materials. So what I found really interesting is that even though Spain in those times was really isolated because the dictatorship isolated the country, um, she was doing work that uh, we can find in other places, like for example in North America, like her quotidian uh, home actions can be associated with, for example, with the work of Mille Laderman Ukelis, who was, you know, listing her uh, caring uh, work in, in, in the house, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, Agnes Dennis and um, Ana Mendieta no? were doing other similar actions in, in the nature. Mm -hmm. And what I find, find interesting is this uh, embodied experience. Um, it's something that really moves me uh, always in feminist art, the, the fact of reclaiming the body as a source of knowledge and experience. And, and also this idea of continuity between what is the female body and, and nature, not to make it an essentialist uh, connection, but mm. to, to reflect on the familiarity between other beings and, and our own body, yeah. the continuity that there is there. That's and her hands barely <coughs> touch the soil. Barely touch the soil. So they could be the beginning of roots, of a root system for me. Mm -hmm. This is also the thinking hand, like it's as if yes. she is nourished by her hands. Literally, yeah. She's really anchored in the ground. And she has a worried it's not only a look, no, which makes it also yeah. very... Um, yeah, you, re you really get drawn into this image. Mm -hmm. Also she the, de the desolate surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. She looks very present. Yeah. Something you did, which was one of the other reasons why we invited you for this traveling academy, um, in t back in 2018, you took part in uh, in Inland's new curriculum here in in Asturias, uh, but more towards Covadonga, actually yes. very very yeah. close to Covadonga, um, and you brought in a, a traditional cheese that is made by shepherds there, the Gamoneo cheese. You brought it in as a mediator in a conversation that aimed to um, open up more empathy and kind of embody different perspectives on the on the whole conflict there or the, the tensions let's say between the sheep and the shepherd and but also the wolf uh, but also the rewilding initiatives like the national park Picos de Europas um, so and you called it a happening this conversation um, when you look back on it now it's five years four years ago um, what what happened for you there? Uh, did it work? And um, did it feel a little bit like trying to to then? How did it feel to try to be the wolf, to try to be the mountain or the sheep or the shepherd? I don't know which being you you embodied that time. Um, yeah, I want to say that this was a collective endeavor. Like uh, it was the 
fruit, let's say, of a, of a workshop that we were doing that, no, the in inland, and I shared it with Carla Rangel and Sebastian Tripod, two others, um, two other participants, and also Stefan Berlet, uh, who was, let's say, the mentor of our group. So um, it was an exercise in empathy. Uh, after the week we spent with uh, with the shepherd, we realized how little we knew about the mountains, and through the conversation with them, we discovered the high complexity of the mountain ecosystem and how like for example social structures that you mentioned you know for example the, the national park or the eu with its regulations are affecting the life of these people uh, mm, pastoralism is is something very uh, ancient in, in asturias it's a six thousand year culture um, and it was one of the few activities that could be done in the Picos de Europa because it's such a harsh orography, you could not have agriculture as such. And um, so there's a sim sim symbiosis, a symbiotic relationship between the shepherds and, and the mountain and the animals. And so we wanted to share with the rest of the group who took part in the workshop our uh, experience and the, the, the little bit that we learned in that time. And uh, us, the, the people who organized the, the the happening, we did not take part as, as animals or beings, but we received the feedback of the people who took part and uh, most of them uh, described like a very eye-opening experience in the sense that they had never thought they could um, replace themselves with fungi or a cow or a, a wolf or an institution like such as the EU or water. You know, we try to... Um, make room for as many elements of that complex contest uh, uh, possible. Also, uh, if I look back to it now, uh, I think it was a very powerful exercise because together with Carla, we decided that we could use it and in other contexts and see what happened. No? So it was almost like a kind of a methodology, like a pedagogical methodology. So I, I repeated this exercise uh, recently, for example, in near Turin, in a workshop I was invited in as a mentor with uh, teenagers. And in the first time it was like mostly um, students of fine arts, architecture, so people that were kind of used to this type of happenings. It was like a sensitive audience we can say already but with the students like the teenagers it was completely different because it was really heterogeneous group and I did something similar because they were we were wondering it was a highly touristic place we were wondering how other beings were perceiving this tourism you know not just talk about tourism in terms of economic growth and how does it benefit the human community but how does it affect the the other animals or the trees or the plants of this ecosystem and Again, it was uh, the response was incredible. Like, um, it went a step further because we created a performance with every people embodying his or uh, their element, the element they had been given. And it's also like an exercise in imagination in the fact that you can, uh, even though for a short period of time, you can uh, try to imagine how other. Uh, beings are feeling in the face of the multiple crises that we are living and also decenter your point of view like try to be less anthropocentric even though it's really difficult but at least we can 
practice it. And um, I would love to like explore more on this methodology that came out from that happening, you know, in, in a very spontaneous way. And I'm really grateful for the reference you gave me because mm. other artists already did something pretty yeah, similar. Yeah, when, when we w talk through the flow, we, we spoke about Joanna Macy, mm -hmm. the work that reconnects, which is a um, beautiful approach to collectively learn to connect ourselves to um, how all these life forms came into being on this planet throughout the times and also mourn for those that we have lost mm -hmm. and celebrate those that are still here. Yes. <laughs> Because as a, as, a, as a thinker and as a maker, uh, there's another project that caught uh, the eye of Eric and I, which is the um, Oriza trolley, mm -hmm. uh, set in the uh, area of Piemonte yes. in, in Italy. Um, and you worked there on uh, rice as staple food. Um, one of our few staple foods, let's say, one of th the three main staple foods in the world when actually there are so many different cereals, right, that we could live on. Yes. Um, and you also s speak about rice being an object of speculation, being genetically modified. Um, and you built uh, a kind of a trolley, which looks to me like a traveling classroom, that you call an experiential archive. So what did you, what, what comes together in that trolley and, uh, and how, do, how should it function? Because the interesting thing is that you showed it both in Valencia and in Piemonte, so in both in the Spanish and the Italian context. Uh, yes, uh, once again, this was the fruit of a um, one-year-long residency at Fondazione Spinola Banna, and the theme of this residency was rice. Uh, we were asked to look at rice from different perspectives. And um, when I started researching on this cereal, I realized that, that it's a traveling plant. No, It was first domesticated in China. Then it arrived to Europe, as many other things, through the Arabs. And the, for the first time, it was cultivated in, in southern Spain, exactly where Valencia is in the 10th century. And then from there... Uh, it was taken also to Italy and other and other regions, so um, that's why I also tried created like a traveling device because I thought of this plant as some as, as a really amazing crop that also adapts and changes uh, according to to the place where it is cultivated. Uh, I was also wondering how the the arrival of this crop how it changed the landscape because rice can be cultivated in very specific uh, conditions uh, with water most of the times. So um, it, I analyzed how the landscape around Valencia was transformed by the arrival of rice in the lagoon of Albufera and then also in Piemonte, which is the region the, the residency was taking place. And most of the times you could see this friction between uh, human needs to feed themselves because rice is a very... A nutritious plant so um, it was cultivated especially starting from the late 19th century in an industrial way like with big extensions of land being transformed into rice paddies and how uh, other forms of, be of, of life were sacrificed for example the Laguna of Albufera was a wetland and most of it was lost to, to rice paddies So analyzing this, this transformation that happened and so many other aspects that rice seems to have influence on uh, in, in these two regions no, that are far away, but uh, in, in, for example, in culture and food, uh, some also like religious festivals that are related to rice. Uh, 
So all this complexity that was created around this plant was so interesting to me. And I found uh, books and novels and drawings. And, you know, I, I, I thought this um, uh, richness was something worth sharing with the public. So mm, the only idea I could, yeah, I, I, the only way I could materialize this great learning process was through through Oriza Collection, which is this uh, traveling repository, we can say, of different types of uh, sources of knowledge that can be like recordings, uh, drawings, maps, books, that the viewers can, can activate through their presence and they can relate to uh, parts of it. it. It's difficult to uh, experience it as a whole, but through these little fragments, I think they can get, uh, they can have a glimpse of the complex web of relationship that rise as creating this in these different territories. Mm -hmm. And when you say uh, viewers can activate it, where, where does the trolley travel to? Uh, okay, the, it has been expo exhibited in different places. The first one was in Valencia uh, during an um, agroecological market. So it was, I tried, uh, especially at the beginning, to uh, show it in non-formal venues. Like, uh, so it was within a market. And uh, I always try to have a, a person that help, helped me during the research there present to um, talk to the people who came, came closer. In Valencia was a, a, a farmer, like a rice farmer. And then it, it traveled to um, Piemonte, where we brought it to um, the, the um, celebration of Madonna del Tabalino, which is when they harvest the rice. So they have this big celebration with a big uh, a common lunch. So it, it was a beautiful also setting. It was very rural because it was in the fields. And later in, it was exhibited uh, in Reggio Emilia, uh, which is also in, in northern Italy, also has a, has a rice production. But that it, there it was more a formal museum. Yeah. How was it within such a communal celebration to suddenly have a trolley that tells you the depth of that celebration and also the intercultural depth of it. How, how was that perceived? What kind of reactions did you get? Like it created curiosity, which is something I, I was aiming at. And um, many people could relate to different, uh, different things. For example, in Valencia, so many people know paella, no, is the typical dish from there. But uh, many people, especially young, had never seen the plant of, the, of rice. It's kind of amazing, no, that <laughs> that's something so essential to the gastronomy and you haven't seen the plant. Some people were drawn to that, some other people were drawn to like old photos and postcards I had found and uh, especially older people uh, had memories related to to being in the fields or being in the Albufera Lake and uh, working also in, in the rice uh, production. Now it's all mechanized, but until the early 70s it was all done by hand so still there are people who, who remember working you know uh, as seasonal workers in that phase so it was it was really different range of, of uh, answers but I, I was happy to see that it really sparkled something into mm. of, uh, some curiosity in the viewers mm. well we've arrived to the closing question of, of our wonderful conversation and since we're already talking about working the land, it's fitting. Mm. Um, because tomorrow you're going to be off to Italy 
you're leaving us because you have the opening of a, the closing exhibition of a one-year residency uh, at Pian Piccoli, mm -hmm. a residency that's also in Piemont yes. and uh, set in a former farmhouse. Uh, you gave the title of your exhibition, Intrinsic Mutuality. It's an art science uh, residency, so again, it's a collaboration. And uh, for this exhibition, you're going to show tomorrow um, these prints um, of tools that you found sort of left behind when you arrived there in the barn, in the stable. They were just there, abandoned since the 60s, mm. 70s. And you had the feeling that you were kind of uh, catapulted <laughs> in time and you wanted to make a kind of tribute to them. Um, yes, the residency um, is also a one-year residency. It's something I'm really grateful for because it's uh, within this fast-moving <laughs> art, contemporary art scene. It's it's time in which you can actually um, develop a, a project in in depth, in more depth uh, compared to other residencies that are much shorter. And I was lucky enough to be uh, collaborating with another artist, Elena Pugliese, and also with a philosopher and epistemologist, Silvio Funtovic. And um, we were free. We were not asked to talk about, you know, to, to analyze one topic. But for me, the first connection I got to the place was exactly this, this experience you described, entering the barn and finding um, so many objects and tools that were abandoned and um, as if people had been there maybe the week before and and I'm naturally drawn to uh, like tools that are used for agricultural manual labor because I think they are I perceive them as an extension of the farmers hands and also as um, the materialization of specific knowledge related to a specific ecosystem agroecosystem and in this case it was really interesting because uh, this um, Pian, the Pian Piccolo, Pian Piccolo is uh, in near the mountains but it's it's a hilly region that had, um, had a lot of like milk production and uh, these grasslands that you see there are not natural they are man-made landscapes often through these uh, tools because you have to uh, cut the grass with like big sickles and uh, in some other places with smaller sickles and that allows for different species to thrive. So I, I started wondering no, about how uh, human action can also be, not necessarily needs to be destructive, no? it can also be um, a force to restore biodiversity and to become aware of this intrinsic mutuality that comes up in the title in the sense that by studying more about the soil of the place and in general about the complex mesh of relationships uh, that that composes a living soil, um, I I became more aware of how uh, essential uh, it is this exchange of matter energy that takes place in the soil that, that actually sustains our culture, every cultural. <laughs> construct that we have depends on that web of life so it's something that makes you feel on the one hand kind of fragile mm. but also it makes you understand the the resilience of life you know throughout this uh, incredible amount of time that is co-evolution no? 
in which we co-evolved. So, yeah, that is something I wanted to to express and to pay homage to this um, relationship between uh, the human work and the tools to to the soil. I created these prints uh, through linocut, using linocut, and uh, experimenting with earth as a pigment. So, in order to make it to make my practice more sustainable, uh, I decided to use uh, linoleum, which is one of the most Eco- it's made from linen, right? Linoleum is made with uh, linseed oil and uh, this thing that you get when you crush wood. I don't know what it's called in English. And then uh, I use like an ecological um, transparent base mixed with the with the earth, opium piccolo, to make my own ink and uh, yeah, some cotton paper to to print it to print the uh, prints on. You and have, you have an image of it yeah. on your phone. Let's have a look. I am pretty happy with the result because I didn't use a printing press. I printed them by hand with a baren, which is this tool that you use, especially in Japanese uh, woodcut prints. And it's slightly imperfect, you know. You can see that it's not the ink is not evenly present in all the parts of the paper. But I think it really creates a, a reference to the fact that all these. Uh, tools are now really rusty like they have this texture yeah and there's that, also a texture in the print it's yeah. like the texture of the paper that yeah that uh, mixes mixes with, with the the ink mm-hmm. and the, of course the ink is kind of coarse because there are like some particles coming from from the from the soil mm. but i thought that that was something interesting to be to be kept and to be shown and I, th- I also think these these tools have intrinsic beauty because they they were designed in such a way as to be uh, used in in an efficient way, no, in in harmony with with the with the body. Even though agricultural work is really is really harsh, they were designed in a way to to make with uh, the least energy, the most the most work. And some of them are really fascinating to me because. Um, as I was saying yesterday, they are associated with specific gestures that you have to do uh, with your body, almost like a choreography. And when more workers are doing the same, it really is like a choreography. I think mm. it is. And how big? How big are they? How big should I imagine? Uh, they are 50 centimeters per 70. So quite big, actually mm-hmm. larger than yeah, life larger size, than life, yeah. which makes them quite abstract. Yeah, I try to um, kind of emphasize their their forms, their shapes. Well, I and think also you, you managed to, to capture kind mm. of um, something animate mm. about them. Yeah. And at the same time, if you don't know that there are tools, I don't know if you would know that this is metal. You could mm. also imagine that it's terracotta, yeah, for example. it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's a hole, yeah. It's the metal part of a hole. And then you put a stick there to, like, carve uh, the, the land. Yeah, I also was interested in this idea of making them become more iconic, like something... Uh, that would really um, strike your attention and that you also have to do a little bit of an effort to understand <laughs> what they are mm-hmm. but also yeah to to make them more visible because when I found them it was really something abandoned you know and and as a culture we have abandoned that type of practice we consider it almost like a primitive practice you know because everything is mechanized but I believe uh, we should relate more to this knowledge that is about to be lost uh, because we are going towards uh, a period of scarcity and these tools 
together with many agricultural techniques, were conceived in times of scarcity. Scarcity is not something that is only happening now, it's been there before. So in order for ourselves to adapt and to face the difficulties that, that are ahead of us, I think we should relate more to these to these types of knowledge that have been left behind. Thank you so much, Chiara. Thank you very much, Sophie, for this wonderful conversation. Mm -hmm. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, socio-political and spatial issues.